0: and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We've been looking at uh, a series of messages entitled, The Hour Has Come. And we have various uh, aspects of the hour that Jesus uh, would come to the place of His crucifixion. Uh, Throughout the book of John, He would say, The hour has not come. But now the hour has come, and we come to verses 28 through 30. And uh, let's just look at those verses before we begin this morning. Verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, And put it to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that this message will speak to our hearts to remind us again what you did, what you accomplished in our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that you. Love us so much that you're willing to die on Calvary's cross and take care of our sin penalty. And we pray, Lord, as we look at this t- this morning, that you'll guide us, direct us. May the God, the Holy Spirit, impress upon our hearts the truth here from Your Word. And we pray your, this in Jesus' name, Amen. After three weeks of punishing bombardment and raging battles, United States military forces took part in an amazing sight. Right in the heart of Baghdad, in a square bearing a huge monument of Saddam Hussein, a crowd gathered in an attempt to topple this image of his brutal dictatorship. With a little help from a crane, the statue toppled, and with it the symbolism of Saddam's brutal regime. But very quickly, the coalition leaders warned that the job was not finished. Though Saddam's statue was toppled, his regime essentially broken, the war was not over. That was proved out by the continuing battles that we witnessed by way of media in days that followed. Unfortunately, some people look at salvation in much the same way. At the cross, Jesus Christ did great damage to the regime of Satan and even symbolically toppled his power. But they think he did not finish the job. And that is left for us to complete through our works, through our service, and through rituals. But Jesus Christ declares otherwise. The work of the Father that the Father gave him to do was completed. John 17 and verse 4. There was no more redemptive work before him. There was nothing else beyond the cross necessary for the salvation of sinners. Understanding that the cross and the resurrection are viewed as a whole. But multitudes of people do not believe this. They view the work of Christ as something added to their works to give them merit before God. That's really the classic Roman Catholic view of justification. Or they view the work of Christ as insufficient for their salvation. So they cast it aside and they cling to their own righteousness. And that's illustrated so often by legalists. Or they consider the work of Christ as inspirational and moving. And one which would serve as an example for their own sacrificial living, which they believe will suffice before God. That's practiced by modern asceticism, which is seen typically in those who take vows of poverty in order to achieve merit with God. But the Apostle John uses a word, the word completed, in various ways throughout the gospel. In particular, he's going to use it three times here in the space of our short text this morning to highlight the theme of his gospel. Jesus Christ finished the saving work the father sent him to do the entire gospel finds a wonderful climax in these words it is finished these words give us the assurance that jesus christ in jesus christ our salvation is complete now the cross of jesus christ is a dividing point for humanity A man either trusts wholly in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, or he considers that he has no real need for the bloody death of Christ on the cross, or perhaps he thinks the cross is a good thing to add to what he's already doing. At this point, humanity is divided for eternity. We're not dealing with negotiable religious ideas when we come to the cross. Instead, we stand on the brink of eternity with God or without him. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. And what does this imply for all of us as we reflect upon the cross? Notice first of all, the incomplete. And we had the word in here in our text here, accomplished in verse 28. We have, it is finished in verse 30. They're exactly the same word, in the Greek, the phrase might be fulfilled comes from a root, the same root word as the other two verbs. But all three imply something that is brought to a conclusion or a completion. And if this is the case, then obviously there must be some things that were incomplete before Jesus Christ finished what he was sent to do. In order to understand what Jesus completed, I believe it's important for us to give some consideration to what remained remained incomplete from Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Notice, first of all, there was ceremonial incomplete. Ceremonial incomplete. The Jews looked upon the crucifixion, and they had been involved that very week in what was called the Passover celebration. Now, it commemorated God's gracious hand of deliverance for Israel while in Egypt, and the Lord instructed Moses to have the people take an unblemished lamb or kid, slay it, and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of their homes. The covering of blood served as an atonement, or a covering being the literal meaning of atonement, and for the people as the death angel would pass over Egypt in judgment. They had not only sprinkled the blood of the lamb, but they had also eaten of the lamb. And we note the significance of the Passover. The direction to sprinkle the entrance meant that blood has to be applied to the house itself, that is, to make atonement for it, and in a sense to convert it into an altar. Seeing this blood, Jehovah, when he passed through to smite the Egyptians, would pass over the door, so that it would not be granted the destroyer to come in into their dwellings. And the sacrificial lamb whose sprinkled blood protected Israel pointed to him, that is Jesus, whose precious blood is the only safety of God's people. The lamb was to be roasted and served up whole, complete, without break or division, not a bone of it to be broken, just as even a bone was not broken of Him, the Lord Jesus, who died for us on the cross. And so the Egyptians had no covering for this fearful judgment of God in the tenth plague. There was no atonement for them, so they faced the loss of the firstborn. It was the blood of the unblemished lamb that spared Israel from the same uh, uh, judgment. Paul points out to us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Peter alludes to the same idea when he wrote that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The relationship of Jesus' atoning sacrifice to the Passover was not a strange coincidence. Instead, it points to the inadequacy of the ceremonial Passover to take away sin. Yes, it covered Israel during the passing over of the death angel, but it had no eternal power in it. It could not permanently take away sins as Jesus came to do. Every celebration of Passover pointed to the day when God himself would provide a lamb to cover the sins of the people, to deliver them from the judgment, legally do them as lawbreakers. All of the ceremonies instituted by the Lord had their completion in Jesus Christ. And so that Jews participated in feasts and they participated in holy days each year as reminders that the Lord their God uh, and His redemptive work was to come among them. The problem among the Jews at this point was an unwillingness to re- realize that their cer- ceremonies were incomplete. They could not save one person from their sins. They held to them and rejected the only sufficient sacrifice of God. And Paul expressed it very clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, pointing out that all these ceremonies were simply shadows of the reality that was to be fulfilled in Christ. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. And so the cry of our Lord, it is finished, points to the end of the ceremonial law. It shows that the ceremonial law was inadequate for our salvation and only a reminder that God would always be faithful to his promises. But then there's also personally incomplete. Personally incomplete. Now we don't usually think of in terms of ceremonial law. That's kind of foreign to us. Perhaps none of us have even been brought up celebrating the Passover. Unless you're a a Jew or lived in a Jewish home, you probably wouldn't have much to do with that. You've only read about it. So it's important that we see another aspect of the incompleteness of salvation apart from Christ. It's found in our own lack of sufficient righteousness to stand before God. When John writes here, All things were now accomplished, he points to the fact that we need cling no longer to our own self-generated righteousness, and it's a grand statement of our personal insufficiency when it comes to salvation. You and I cannot save ourselves. We can't be good enough to save ourselves. Most people do not want to admit that they're helpless before God. They'll tenaciously cling to their works of righteousness and all the good deeds and say, you know, look what I've done. I'm surely going to be in favor with God because of all these good things I've done through my life. But rather than seeing them as dung as Apostle Paul did, many think their works as a treasure to God. And they look around at their fellow sinners and they surely find plenty who are worse than they are in their behavior. And then they look at themselves and kind of with a proud spirit, they parade their accomplishments. Look, God, see what I've done? I've done this and this and this. And they have a hope. Some go as far as calling it an assurance that they are, have enough personal merit to give themselves right standing before God. But I would point out to you that if there was an eternal work for Jesus Christ to finish, then there's something lacking on our part. If God had to finish it, if Jesus had to finish it, there's something lacking on our part. What's lacking? We have no righteousness of our own to offer God. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says. Apart from righteousness, no one can stand before an eternal judge of the universe. He is the righteous God who dwells in holiness. When he gave the law to the children of Israel, he did not tell them to obey some of the time. Do this and live, the Lord told Israel. Did they obey the law, having received it from the hand of Moses? All they did was disobey. They followed their own nature. And God gave them and gives us the law to expose the reality of our sinfulness. Paul expressed it like this to the church of Galatia. He said a church, uh, uh, this Galatia was a church that was threatened to fall back into legalism for righteousness. And he said this, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And Paul points it out in Romans 7, the problem is not with the inadequacy found in the law, rather it's an inadequacy found in us. We do not have the nature wholly to keep the law and to live. We are incomplete when it comes to personal righteousness. And so apart from Jesus Christ satisfying the legal demands of the law for lawbreakers, and apart from him imputing his own righteousness to us, we have no claim to eternity with God. We stand incomplete. So that's the incomplete. But notice, secondly, the complete. Because that's the emphasis upon, of our text completion. The ceremonial laws upon which religious men cling for salvation were incomplete. The personal efforts of righteousness which moral men hold for salvation is incomplete. It's only in him who cried on the cross, it is finished, that we are complete. What did Jesus complete on the cross? Well, there's that which is prophetically complete. John's intention is to show us that everything prophetically related to the saving work of Jesus Christ was fulfilled on the cross. And we must keep in mind that John views the passion of Christ as a whole. So we we see the death, burial, resurrection uh, thought here of expressing statements on the death of Christ. You do not have one without the other, I don't don't think here in in John's thinking. This is uh, somewhat different than Paul's approach in First Corinthians fifteen, but here we have the death, burial, and resurrection as a, as as the whole. And John uses the term for completion when dealing with the Old Testament scripture. He says this: After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were are now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, saying, "I thirst." Now the word fulfilled, simply put, means to be completed we've already noted in previous studies that specific details of prophecy were fulfilled to in minute detail during the crucifixion the casting of lots of for his garments a being numbered with the criminals and now the thirsting of Christ and all that all of that's recorded in the old testament and certainly being crucified in the heat of the Judean sun would dehydrate anyone The cry of thirst in our Lord was an expression of the actual suffering and anguish which he experienced on our behalf on the cross. No words can fully express what bitter sorrows he endured. And yet he does not desire to be free from them until he has satisfied the justice of God. His cry of thirst was not a plea to deliver him from the cross, but to fulfill what the psalmist had already predicted of Messiah. I don't think that Christ had any mental checklist. He wasn't kind of going through a checklist. Well, this has been said, this, you know, he wasn't doing that. He was bearing our sin. And out of the agony of those moments, it was a cry that naturally came forth, I thirst. David had described it in Psalm 22 and verse 15. He said, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Later in Psalm 69 and verse 21, David states in distress, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I was reading about this vinegar that was offered to Christ. It was a common drink of Roman soldiers it was a mixture of sour wine and water and in the souring most of the alcohol had evaporated and so it was a drink that was supposed to be kind of like a stimulant you know like coffee <gasps> did you have your coffee this morning i hope so most of you look like you've had your coffee well that's kind of what it was for and and no doubt as they would come to the scene of the crucifixion. They knew they'd probably be there for a while. And they brought this jug of vinegar. And so in hearing Jesus cry, I thirst, evidently one of the bystanders found a sponge, soaked it in some of this sour wine, and stuck the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant. The stalk of mature hyssop would grow about three or four feet it evidently was the right length for a man with an outstretched arm to reach the mouth of Jesus on the cross. And this vinegar or sour wine given to him may have just revived him enough to physically so that he could utter these words, It is finished. Now, all of that was prophesied in the Old Testament. We're told that long before this ever happened. And this was a fulfillment of Scripture. It was prophesied prophetically complete. But then secondly, it was chronologically complete. The cry, it is finished, also had an effect of stating an end chronologically to the work that Jesus was sent to do. Now, in verse 30, it contains both a chronological sense of ended and also a theological sense of achieved. In the mind of Christ, he had purposed to fulfill every detail of what the Father commanded Him to do. Remember again, John seventeen four says, "I have glorified Thee on earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest Me to do." And there's no detail that's left out. There's nothing that was necessary uh, that was necessary for our salvation left to chance or left to our efforts. I think that's very significant for us to think about, to consider. For one of the basic problems that seems to plague some earnest seekers of Christ is their attempt to add something to the work of salvation. These people are serious about desiring salvation, but due to their background or their personality makeup, they cannot fathom that there's nothing for them to do. They acknowledge the death of Jesus, they lay claim to it, but they consciously or unconsciously try to add something of their own personal effort to what Christ has done. And so consequently, they have not trusted wholly in Jesus Christ. They've trusted partially in Christ, and partially on their own efforts. Some set out to do this from the very start. Others slide into it because of the problem of unbelief. Listen to the words of our Lord. He said, it is finished. There's nothing else you can do or need to do to secure salvation. His work is done. Look at God's timetable for salvation. The end is stamped upon the cross. You can be set free from the vain efforts of trying to add to the work of Christ if you will see that it is finished. It is completed in Jesus Christ and notice thirdly theologically complete what needed to be completed for god to be able to justly forgive sinners and justly bring them to the uh, to his kingdom well the answer again is the cross of jesus christ paul addressed this whole matter of god's justice in romans chapter 3 among other places he stated that the cross was for god's own satisfaction And the word he used to describe this is the word propitiation. It refers to God's just demands upon sinners and consequently his judgment against them being satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. God demands eternal damnation for all who dare to breach his holy character expressed in his law. His demand is not a mere whim, or an immature reaction to being wronged. It's a righteous response of one who is infinitely holy, who has been spurned and blasphemed by the very ones he has given the breath of life. And he's established the law for his creatures. To break even one law demands death because of the nature of sin against God. Romans 3.25 explains that at the cross, God displayed publicly. Jesus Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. God would be unjust to simply acquit one sinner without justice being satisfied. And to forgive or to let even one sin slide under the table, so to speak, would be an injustice on the part of God whose character is infinitely just. So God demonstrated His righteousness. And in forgiving sinners past, present, and future by assigning the judgment due to us onto His own Son at the cross. Paul adds that God did this so that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3.26 so the work of Christ on the cross propitiated God so that God might pardon sinners and declare them to be fully righteous before him. And we don't stop being sinners when God declares us righteous, though we have a different relationship to sin. But his justice has been fulfilled. And on the basis of the death of our substitute is satisfied the righteous demands of the law. He has pardoned us for eternity. His wrath has been satisfied, so that he can justly declare a sinner to be righteous due to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and the imputation, the putting of on his righteousness on us, for our standing before God. It is finished, is a declaration that God has completed through Christ all that's needed to be done to justify a sinner. And justification is the reverse of that state of condemnation to which man as a sinner is, uh, is judged by the law of God. It's not the creature's act, but purely the act of God. It's not the moral character of the creature that's affected by it, but his legal relation. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, nor is his own personal exercise of gracious uh, disposition, but the sentence of God as a lawgiver, pronouncing him just and accepting him as a righteous man. It's not an acquittal of a charge of a personal wickedness. For in the very act of justification, there is the strongest implication that of that charge, nor is it in any form or decree a vindication of the sinner's conduct, nor any excuse. But on the other hand, a direct condemnation of it, and in the most emphatic terms, it is God that justifieth. It's the act of God, originating in His free, unmerited grace, whereby He judges the disobedient to the rewards of the obedient, the unjust to the rewards of the just, securing them, and to them, all the positive blessings which His law secures to be a an unoffended and perfectly obedient subject. I hope we can see that this basically means there's nothing we can add to salvation. There's nothing you can do to merit what God has offered. He has accepted the work of His own Son on your behalf, on my behalf, so that we might be pardoned and declared righteous before Him. And so that brings us to the dividing point. Mentioned earlier, this is the dividing point. Either you, you trust God, you accept His, His uh, sentence, or you don't. The dividing point. We have seen the cross and the glory as being God's finished work. And yet so few will believe what Jesus accomplished, and that it's really, truly finished, And people will labor, and they'll strain with all their self-effort trying to appease God. And they go through all sorts of religious rituals and acts of service to be justified. But again, listen to the words of Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross there as the mediator between God and man. He said, it is finished. There's no sweeter words to the heart than assurance that Jesus Christ has availed for us so that we no longer live under condemnation of the law and the curse of the fall. All that God has demanded for us for life, Christ has finished. Not even the best person on the face of this earth could add anything to what Christ has done. It's finished. Now, do you believe it? I do not mean, do you simply acknowledge this as being what the Bible teaches? But do you believe that God, the Son, became a man to mediate the way to God for you? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you believe that apart from him and his work on the cross, you have nothing Absolutely nothing to offer God for your salvation. Have you come to the place of recognizing that you're a sinner, condemned before God because of the curse of the fall and your breaking of His holy law? Have you, in anguish of heart, found yourself desperate for God's pardon? Have you come to the place of longing to have life that He alone can give? If there's someone here to this morning who has not ever done that, my plea is to look to Jesus Christ and him crucified for you. Hear him say, hear him say these words, it is finished. Put your trust, your dependence upon the lamb of God slain in your place. Let's bow in prayer. Father.